Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for attending the, uh, the event, and good evening to all of those of you in Korea. Uh, my name is Bruce Klinger. I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and it's my pleasure today to, to host the event on what's the potential for a North Korean provocation or a summit with the United States. So uh, before we dive in, um, I'd like to remind you that we want you to be part of the conversation. So please submit any questions throughout the event into the questions box. Uh, please be sure to tell us your name, your affiliation, or where you're tuning in from, and we'll get to as many of the questions uh, as we can. Uh, this session is being recorded and will be emailed to you as well as posted on the heritage.org slash events within 48 hours. Uh, so last and certainly not least, like you, we're all broadcasting for our homes. So uh, thanks for your patience. If there are any small technical issues, uh, hopefully no small children will be walking into any of our screens. Uh, and I know this is the first time I'm hosting a webinar, so I'm juggling a lot of things. So again, we ask for your uh, forbearance. Uh, this morning we, uh, and evening, we have a very distinguished VIP speaker and then a stellar panel. Uh, so we'll start with our VIP speaker, and then I will ask our panelists to come on uh, after that. Uh, Mr. Tay, if you could turn on your uh, camera right now. I think everyone knows Tay Yong-ho. Uh, he was recently elected to the South Korean National Assembly from the Gangnam District, becoming the first North Korean escapee to win a National Assembly seat through a constituency vote. Uh, he was previously a senior diplomat in the North Korean Foreign Ministry, including as the Deputy Chief of Mission in London uh, before he escaped to South Korea. Uh, and what I find particularly interesting in his biography is that he escorted Kim Jong-un's older brother uh, to a Eric Clapton concert in London. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of Eric Clapton and I've, I've never been to one of his concerts, so I'm quite envious of uh, Mr. Tay's not only being able to rise to such senior positions and in two countries, uh, but also for that. So uh, National Assembly Member Tay, we are truly honored to have you here today and, and I'm very appreciative of your taking the time. Uh, so please uh, turn your camera on now and the, and the floor is yours. And then I will afterwards ask our panel to, um, to turn on their cameras, but not until afterwards. Thank you, sir. Hello and good morning everyone in US. I'm told that Heritage is interested in short and clear position paper, so I just want to make a very short and clear uh, presentation. In Seoul uh, these days even, questions are focused on whether U.S. and North Korea summit is likely or will North Korea carry out a major provocation such as a nuclear or ICBM test before American November election? My answer is, first, I do not think October Surprise Summit or any summit between US and North Korea is likely. My judgment is based on the statement by Kim Yo-jong on July 10. To be honest, I have not seen any statement from North Korea like, you know, the, this one, which is, you know, almost six pages long and very ambiguous, but on the meanwhile, very well written. 
So that's why after the release of this statement by Kim Yo-sung, there are a lot of interpretations how we understand this one. So first of all, some of the quotations which I want to use is this one. Kim Yo-sung said in a statement, which I want to quote as follows on the summit issues. She said, first, the summit talks, if needed, they will only be needed for the U.S. and they will be unprofitable to us. Second, we will only end up losing time again, even though we sit across with the U.S., which does not even have a, a courage to dare a new challenge, and it would only entail a risk of impairing the special relations that have been maintained between the top leaders. And third, it should not be accepted because it was foretold by Bolton, who is a human scum. Even though in her statement she mentioned the name of Bolton, but she emphasized the word of should not be accepted. A very strong word should not be accepted. That means Kim Jong-un is unlikely to agree to such a state summit short of any concrete results. Even though President Trump last week said that he would make deals with North Korea very quickly if re-elected in November. Still, President Trump did not state his clear terms of deal. So North Korea may regard the last week's Trump's statement as a kind of President Trump's campaign strategy to prevent Kim Jong-un from in intervening in the election by military provocations. So then without any summit the second half of this year before November election, the question is then will North Korea make another strategic provocation? I don't think so. First, Kim Jong-un understands well that re-election of President Trump would be best chance of cutting a deal in favor of Kim Jong-un. I do not think Kim Jong-un will do anything provocative that might hurt Trump's chance of winning. Kim Jong-un still believes that if President Trump wins re-election, there is certainly a possibility for progress on denuclearization deal and it is well worth the efforts to try. And second, despite the deadlock of nuclear negotiations between North Korea and the U.S., Kim Yo-jong, in her statement, has not fully ruled out the possibility of resuming talks with Washington in particular ahead of U.S. presidential election in November. While Kim Yo-jong downplayed the possibility of a brother meeting with President Trump again in her statement, she unexpectedly requested a DVD of U.S. Independence Day celebrations, which this kind of hint was really rare in North Korean system. Since that message on July 10 by Kim Yo-jong, so far, North Korea is not saying anything. So North Korea clearly stated, which I want to quote here, 
Kim Yo-jong's statement. Here, Kim Yo-jong said, we do not have slightest intention to pose a threat to the U.S. And Comrade Chairman has already made it clear to President Trump. Everything will go smoothly if they leave us alone and make no provocation on us. That is the exact you know, sentences which Kim Yo-jong used. So the probability of big military provocation by Kim Jong-un uh, is unlikely. Thirdly, the current atmosphere in North Korea is not for provocation. In June, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un suspended indecised military actions against South Korea amid growing tensions on the Korean Peninsula sparked by the North's demolition of ranking to Korean liaison office in the border city of Gasong. In addition, even after that demolition, the South and the U.S. scaled down their combined military exercises later this month. And by now, in South Korea, I can't even hear any words of joint military exercise in August. And more importantly is the recently North Korea released grain from Kim Jong-un's own special stock for flood victims. I think everyone is very well aware that Kim Jong-un's grain reserve reserves to a special stockpile of grain that can only be used in the event of war. So why all of a sudden North Korea in the first time in history opened the news that Kim Jong-un released the grain from his own special stock. I think the first, this means that North Korea's current food situation is really, really difficult. And the second, because of these corona cases, North Korea is really in difficult condition. So I think Kim Jong-un wants to send a kind of SOS signal to China who is the only one who can send emergency aid to North Korea. So in the coming you know, months, in the second half of this year, if Kim Jong-un needs urgently the help from China, he cannot go on big military propagations against America. I, at last, I want to end my presentation by just saying a few words about the Christmas gifts which appeared twice by North Korea. Kim Yo-jong said in a statement, I quote, the U.S. may still worry about receiving a Christmas gift on the eve of presidential elections, which it has not received so far. This is the second time North Korea used the word of Christmas gift. So I can imagine Something big is already ready to show at any moment, whether it is new submarine or, or SLBM. It is clear that North Korea has made another progress in developing its strategic weapons. I have witnessed that after North Korea first emphasized the word of Christmas gift last December, the people like Lee Byung-chol, 
who is in charge of developing ICBM, and Park Byung-chul, Chief of Staff of North Korean Army, have made a very quick promotion in the rank of North Korea's uh, Workers' Party of Korea. This kind of very quick promotion in the rank, which is almost impossible without any concrete progress in North Korea's strategic weaponry. So in a word, Kim Jong-un has not wasted the past two years and a half dialogue period with the President Trump for further developing North Korean nuclear stockpiles. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Tay. That was a very comprehensive uh, presentation which covered a lot of ground. Uh, it, it sounds like from you that we're going to have a quiet few months uh, before the election, uh, whereas some of us, I think, may have expected we'd have some kind of uh, excitement one way or the other. Uh, if I could invite my other panelists to turn on their cameras now, and, and we'll get started with the moderated uh, discussion. So just a sort of short introduction of, of each of our panelists who should be very well known to, to anyone who follows Korea. Uh, Jung Pak is the South Korea Korea Foundation, or SK Korea Foundation Chair in Korea Studies and Senior Fellow uh, for Foreign Policy at Brookings. Uh, she's the recent author of Becoming Kim Jong-un, a former CIA officer's insights into North Korea's enigmatic young dictator, uh, which I commend everyone to, to read. Uh, she previously served at uh, several positions in the CIA, including as Deputy National Intelligence Officer uh, at the National Intelligence Council. And our next uh, panelist is Marcus Galoskis. He led the U.S. intelligence community's strategic analysis on North Korea as the National Intelligence Officer for North Korea at the National Intelligence Council. And before that, he served 12 years uh, in South Korea with United Nations Command, Combined Forces Command, U.S. Forces Korea, as the Chief of Intelligence Estimates, as well as the, the Chief of the Strategy Division. Uh, Doo-Yeon Kim is the Senior Advisor for Northeast Asia and Nuclear Policy at the International Crisis Group, previously at the Carnegie Endowment, and previous, uh, before that, the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. Uh, and Doo-Yeon is, is sort of our ace in the hole because she can be our forward observer in South Korea since none of us can travel there due to the COVID virus. Uh, so that's a, a great advantage of, of hers. Uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, rather than having presentations by the panelists, Instead, I will be moderating a discussion uh, with the three of them. First, my questions will be, uh, you know, come. I'll have them, and then we'll throw them open to the questions from the, the audience. Uh, so first, I'm going to be focusing on interacting with the three panelists, and then I'll be bringing in Mr. Uh, Tay for his comments. So um, although we're going to cover a lot of topics, we are sort of focused initially, at least, on this October surprise. So uh, to start us off, I want to look at a little bit more at the North Korean thinking and the objectives. So uh, turning to, to Jung Pak, uh, you know, it seems like since Hanoi, there have been a number of themes in North Korean public statements, the increasing irrelevance of the relationship between Kim and Trump, even though they continue to describe it as good, uh, a regime willingness to criticize and even insult President Trump, uh, dismissing the potential for negotiations, although leaving the door open a, a crack for a summit or uh, other meetings. Uh, and then also these threats of provocative action before uh, the U.S. election. So um, you know, if I could ask uh, Jung to sort of flesh that out, what is, what is North Korea thinking? What are they 
what is their objective here? Thanks, Bruce, and, and thank you to Assemblyman uh, Tay for um, leading us off. And it's an honor to be with um, to to be uh, with this distinguished panel, um, Bruce. Uh, I just wanted to give a quick. Um, overview of what I think North Korea is doing right now. I think um, while uh, the U.S. Um, and experts in the U.S. tend to think of every action as uh, driven by North Korea's desire to drive relations with the United States, I think at this point what we see is potentially a more uh, domestic focus. Uh, Kim has been focused on, since, since late January, of uh, containing the coronavirus. Um, the regime has been making great efforts to try to make sure that everyone in the world, domestically and internationally, they know that uh, the, the North Koreans have this under control. Uh, secondly, I think Kim has been using that as an op the coronavirus as an opportunity to start reining in uh, what the what the Korean what the regime has been talking about in terms of corruption uh, and. Uh, an unbridled um, capitalism and marketization. Um, and and uh, I also think that given some of the heavy rains and some of the weather related issues now that there is a great focus on the regime trying to show that it is it is uh, caring for the for its people. Um, so, uh, and I think that some of the things that we saw Kim Yo-jung say, that's, I, I think that in, in part that there was a, a domestic motivation uh, for that to try to burnish her military credentials, uh, to elevate her position uh, in the regime uh, for whatever uh, purpose that Kim Jong-un has. Um, that said, um, I agree with Assemblyman Tay on uh, about the potential for an October surprise, a summit, um, or a strategic provocation before the election be, as being unlikely. Uh, that said, you know, I think one of the things that Marcus, when when he and I used to work together at the National Intelligence Council, one of the things that we uh, are part of our job was to make sure that we don't have these very definitive statement about what North Korea is going to do. We're not engaging in, in uh, predicting the right numbers for the lottery, for example, um, but we're trying to, uh, to manage the risks uh, for our senior policymakers. So, in, uh, so let me close by saying, uh, pointing out some four things that I think um, that might be drivers for a uh, summit or it's a strategic provocation. These are not mutually exclusive. Um, and so let me lay them out very quickly and then hit it, uh, send it back to you, Bruce. Um, so, so your four uh, motivators or drivers uh, for Kim Jong-un, I would say one, that in order for a summit to happen, he would have to be reasonably sure that the U.S. had significant carrots uh, 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 to offer and that these were sustainable and able to be implemented over the medium to long term. Secondly, uh, Kim Jong-un, if he sees the election as uh, that uh, President Trump is unlikely to be elected, um, that that he might see this as his last chance to make irreversible gains. Third, uh, that uh, because of his discomfort or de over-dependence on China, um, that he might see a, an opportunity to try to keep China, Beijing's leaders on edge. Um, as we know, uh, as we've assessed uh, in many other um, analyses, uh, Chinese leaders have a fear of being marginalized in any conversations with uh, between United States and uh, North Korea. Um, and this might be a way that uh, Kim might use it as leverage to either extract or to punish or to show his freedom of action vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Chinese leadership. Uh, fourth, 
if Kim sees, I think that uh, if we see a summit or uh, if we see a summit that Kim uh, sees his economic situation is extremely dire um, and that he requires uh, assistance um, uh, or a, uh, a, a he, he requires assistance from the United States or the international community, or he can, he might conduct a strategic provocation to uh, to try to uh, have the same to reach the same goal. Um, so let me stop there um, with those four drivers or potential motivators for Kim's decision making, uh, whether he chooses a summit or strategic provocation. Thanks, Bruce. Great. Thanks very much. I, I had to smile when I heard drivers, since that was a phrase we, we so often used in the intelligence community. The, the other phrase I was waiting for was signposts along the, the particular path of, of what indicative of you know, a direction a country was going on. Um, just to follow up on your second driver, uh, my understanding from Mr. Tay was that he didn't think a, a summit was likely before the election, uh, but that it would be in North Korea's best interest to have uh, Trump reelected and be more, more likely to have uh, an, a, an agreement uh, under Mr. Trump. Um, from your second point, it sounded like if North Korea didn't think President Trump was going to be reelected, then that would increase the potential for North Korea pushing for another summit before November. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I, I also think that a summit um, before the election is highly unlikely, given what all sides are saying about this. And given that the U.S. has not changed its position on sanctions removal um, or any ask or any part that uh, that North Korea cares about um, that. But, you know, what if uh, I've often wondered why North Korea hasn't pushed on on various things to try to move the ball forward that there's been an intense focus on sanctions reduction but there are other things that north korea could push could have pushed on that would be nibbling away at the edges of the u.s south korea alliance for example uh, a peace treaty or a peace declaration we know that president trump has publicly announced that he wants uh, some sort of peace declaration that he's you know he's he's wanted this uh, nobel peace prize i mean there is a constituency of, uh, in the united states who might push for some push for such a statement as well as in South Korea. And I'll leave it to Jiyun Kim to talk about some of the, the South Korea motivations. Um, so I think that if uh, I think that's something that uh, could potentially be achievable, a peace declaration, which in many ways is symbolic, uh, but it could set the stage for some other things that North Korea take, could take advantage of um, either later this year or in the next uh, uh, administration. Okay, great. Uh, I'm going to uh, turn to Marcus now. Um, we, we haven't mentioned China, and I want to bring the 800-pound dragon in, into the room. Uh, Mr. Tay talked a, a bit about North Korea wanting to keep China's leaders on edge. Uh, sort of looking the other direction, what do you think uh, Beijing, their viewpoint on what's going on, the, uh, the relative quiet in North Korea, given the threats throughout last year about uh, either a Christmas gift or an end-of-year deadline, and that things would then become dire and unpredictable. So uh, if you could sort of walk us through with a, the Chinese objectives or Chinese thinking. Uh, thanks, Bruce, and, and, and thanks to uh, my fellow panelists. I think this is a great discussion. So, Bruce, I think first and foremost, uh, China, and this seems almost cliche, seeks stability uh, in the region uh, and is going to be looking to try and keep North Korea from doing anything uh, in terms of an October surprise that might disrupt that stability. However, uh, I think China recognizes also that it has very limited tools available to influence Kim's behavior. It has potentially a lot of leverage, 
uh, because we know North Korea is relying on aid a great deal right now because of the COVID restrictions. Uh, and we also know that um, the, the North Koreans, in the end, they, they really heavily rely on, on, uh, on China for, uh, for essentially for energy, for petroleum. Um, however, um, I think there's another uh, key variable to keep in mind here, and that's the fact that, um, that because of the COVID um, restrictions, uh, sanctions relief is not really something that can do a whole lot of good for, uh, for North Korea right now. And even though China is, is pushing uh, on sanctions relief, I think China also recognizes that even if they were to get some sort of uh, sanctions relief for North Korea um, in, in that unlikely event, uh, there's really not much value for North Korea right now, given the COVID uh, restrictions. So I think China feels a little bit more uh, constrained than usual in what it can really uh, do to uh, influence Kim's behavior. Um, and, and I think it's re resorting to some of its uh, you know, past tactics uh, of trying to pressure the United States for restraint um, and, and emphasize um, the, uh, the stability being an overriding shared goal uh, between the United States and, uh, and Beijing, and, and also trying, I think, to show it's in everyone's interest, even in North Korea's interest, to have stability. Um, but, but in the end, I, I think the, the Chinese, the Chinese ability to affect the situation um, is going to be more limited um, than than it, even than it usually is because of uh, the because of the COVID situation uh, and, and because of the political environment in the United States. And and will they be will China be more or less likely to try to uh, either get involved or be more involved with the uh, peninsula issues uh, given the the very strained relations right now between Washington and Beijing? Bruce, I think that's a spectacular point. Uh, I think what we saw from China in 2017 uh, in terms of signing on to very very strong sanctions and seeing strong sanctions enforcement, I think that moment was really enabled not just by this unprecedented level of weapons testing uh, that came from North Korea uh, and Kim's uh, essentially very standoffish approach to Beijing in 2017, but also it was enabled by, by a relationship between uh, Washington and Beijing uh, that was in a much better place. Uh, and so I, I think China's uh, willingness to sign on to major sanctions or even to threaten major sanctions, uh, either return um, to, to stronger enforcement or new sanctions, I think that is going to be uh, really much more limited, maybe even uh, impossible uh, in comparison to where it was uh, in, in 2017. And I think that uh, the North Korean regime probably understands that the sort of situation, the way the stars aligned in 2017, uh, that really enabled that uh, Chinese pressure on North Korea in response to the weapons testing, that that's not the same environment that North Korea would be facing in the future. So I'm not saying that means North Korea is going to do uh, a major test, but certainly counting on China to be the restraining factor uh, right now seems to be a bad bet. Right. So it would seem like there's perhaps conflicting objectives for Beijing. On the one hand, they want to keep things quiet and stable, no provocations, uh, perhaps hoping for progress on, on denuclearization. Uh, but on the other hand, perhaps gaining some traction with Washington of, you know, give us what we want on other issues, other lanes in the road. Otherwise, uh, things could get uh, you know, more unstable on the peninsula. They've tried to play that North Korea card. Uh, but as you know, sometimes saying they have great influence over North Korea. So therefore, the U.S. should offer concessions in other lanes in the road. And then at other times saying, oh, we can't control the North Koreans. Don't look to us. 
I think right now China is engaging in a blame game based on what we've seen from recent statements is, is essentially they're setting the conditions that if North Korea does uh, do something particularly provocative or problematic, uh, that they are going to uh, pin it on the United States for not having offered North Korea more incentives, more sanctions relief. Uh, and certainly we, we saw that from uh, the foreign minister uh, just a few weeks ago basically really putting the onus on the U.S. to provide some sort of incentives to North Korea, essentially a reward for, for what they seem to be thinking of as good behavior, the, re, the relative level of restraint North Korea's exercise in comparison to 2017. Great. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to turn to Dewey on now, uh, you know, take advantage of your uh, being there in Seoul, which we can't get to. Uh, there's been a lot of focus, though, in amongst the Korea watchers in Washington about Moon Jae-in's new national security team and sort of how big a change that will uh, represent in Moon's policy, as well as how, how much change can they actually bring about uh, with North Korea, given that North Korea has been so dismissive uh, of the Moon administration, and even quite insulting to, to President Moon himself. So, uh, Duyan, what 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 can we expect either differently or uh, continuity from the Moon administration with this new team? Well, first, thanks, Bruce, so much for having me and in very good company with a distinguished panel. Uh, I think the bottom line here with um, the Moon government, they're trying to step on the gas uh, on inter-Korean relations to ramp that up, to try to get something going first, because they're not going to be able to have much contact uh, with North Korea. But their biggest challenge right now is an unwilling North Korean partner. And we also know that, um, you know, President Moon has stated publicly, too, that he wants to help facilitate uh, another Trump-Kim summit before the November election. Uh, now, this is where your, your question comes into play. Uh, the new or the upgraded national security team, he's really brought all hands back on deck, basically, uh, with some of his reshuffles. And, you know, I, I, they're trying to it seems like they're trying to probe every channel that they used to have, dating back years ago, uh, dating back to Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il era, uh, and trying to establish contact in any shape, way, shape, or form. And that's, and I think that's why we're also hearing some of these proposals uh, across the board, like cultural, humanitarian aid. Uh, uh, and so I, I think that's the first order of business to, to try to establish those, those contacts. Uh, and and it, in a similar sense, or in that vein, they've brought back someone like the new intelligence chief, Pak Juan, who used to have these um, intimate relationships with people under Kim's father, Kim Jong-il. Uh, but the big question here is that does that translate into him having the same types of and level of access under a Kim Jong-un regime? And I think there are a lot of questions there, a lot of skepticism there. So again, his big task will also be to try to cultivate these relationships. Um, you know, and so if you look at the Moon government's broad or general inter-Korean cooperation or inter-Korean relations approach, uh, they're basically fundamentally using the same playbook and formula as uh, previous progressive governments have used uh, during Kim Dae-jung, the Mihan governments under Kim's father's regime. Uh, and, and that's where we're also seeing, you know, things like the, you know, um, 
humanitarian uh, cooperation. You know, they're trying to build up the scale of cooperation from you know smaller things and try to build it up to, to larger projects. Of course, because of sanctions in, in, in place right now too. Uh, but this is where um, you know I, I have some skepticism because it seems North Korea unlike during his father right now they actually want the big ticket items they want things that will um, generate hard currency foreign currency big profits cash and predominantly due or largely due to the post 2016 sanctions in place it's difficult and imp or impossible for um, you know the moon government to try to um, begin and resume those types of big ticket item cooperation projects. Uh, it, but you know, so far the North has not responded. In other words, they're basically rejecting South Korea's proposals uh, to resume into Korean cooperation. And so in that sense, um, the Kim Jong-un regime is different. Um, and you know, the in the past, and this is, you know, all, Korea watchers know this um, for many years, that the typical South Korean progressive uh, modus operandi has been to pay for a summit or pay for talks or pay for cooperation. Uh, but this is something that's also realistically difficult, difficult in today's context because of the sanctions in place. Even if they wanted to clandestinely try to, and, and perhaps, you know, Assemblyman Tae could uh, answer this question in more detail, but it would see, but I've been hearing that it's more difficult practically to try to clandestinely even send um, whether it's in-kind or, or money in-kind uh, to try to jumpstart into Korean uh, cooperation. And so, um, you know, as we on this panel all know that President Moon really needs to have um, progress on the nuclear front or denuclearization front and progress between U.S.-North Korea negotiations in order to start lifting sanctions in order to resume into Korean uh, cooperation projects uh, and right now, you know, he's he's really struggling with having, um, you know, the sanctions in place, but also a North Korean um, partner that just is not willing to dance yet. Um, you know, the the new unification minister seems to be the most forward leaning or or most outspoken in in pushing for ideas to improve relations between the Koreas. Um, and I think he's the one that perhaps some of us have the most concern about. He's talked about um, even the U.S.-South Korea coordination group, which was set up after each capital had surprised the other with policy announcements. Uh, he's sort of saying that that should either be done away with or, or that has a separate lane in the road and that inter-Korean relations are more the responsibility of the, the unif unification minister. Um, so, and also... South Koreans uh, in the Moon administration have sort of repeatedly said, well, we don't think sanctions apply to this proposal, even though uh, I think sanctions lawyers and others would say they clearly do. So uh, do we need to be concerned that the Moon administration is going to be too eager, that it, it may um, be willing to risk strains in the relationship with Washington over trying to, to reach out on either economic or, or other initiatives? I'll, I'll direct that one to Duyon. So even if in the heart of hearts they might want to do that, um, I, I think realistically it would be difficult for them to do it unless they're given a reason. And for example, that reason would be some sort of friction in the lines, whether it's Trump saying or doing something to upset uh, South Korea's to, to give them some sort of reason to try to push the envelope more. 
Um, but other, but absent that type of excuse or justification or reason, um, you know, for now, I, I, I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that they're um, eager to start, you know, violating sanctions and start um, being the ones to cause uh, the tension and, and more friction in the alliance. So I think for now, they're going to uh, try to, you know, behind the scenes, try to convince the Trump administration as best they can. Uh, to to either show flexibility or to to be more lenient, but here um, this is where you know uh, I would imagine many of our colleagues outside of government um, also would be trying to suggest to the Moon government that sounds all great, but try to incentivize North Korea instead of unconditionally um, trying to give them a uh, certain types of economic projects. Uh, you know, try to incentivize them to come out to, at least to come out to um, real credible and, and, and meaningful dialogue or negotiations uh, with the United States first before trying to um, jump on this whole, you know, inter-Korean um, cooperation projects that could uh, run up against um, UN sanctions and other sanctions. Okay, uh, I want to turn now to uh, sort of going down the the if the, if there was a provocation path, and we can talk about drivers and signposts. Um, so. Uh, Marcus, I'm going to start with you because I see your your missile flight uh, is behind you there. Uh, this the new strategic weapon. Um, what might that be? And then and now I'll throw it open, uh, sort of for a crossfire amongst the the analysts. Sort of what would what would drive North Korea to feel that they had to do some kind of provocation, whether it's a display of something on say October 10th, the anniversary of the founding of the Korea Workers Party, when they often have military parades. Or, or launching or, or testing something. So Marcus, I'll, I'll start with you. Bruce, I really appreciate the question. It's a great one. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. So uh, I think we all need to keep in mind uh, that, that there was a pretty definitive uh, statement from Kim Kerry in North Korean state media on January 1st uh, about the fact that the world would, would witness a new strategic weapon uh, and that also, uh, just a few sentences away in the same statement, that he's no longer bound by his pledge to halt ICBM launches and nuclear testing. I think taken in combination, that's an ominous sign for where North Korea plans to go with strategic weapons testing. Um, and just because we haven't seen that new strategic weapon really uh, really, really demonstrated yet, uh, doesn't mean that it's not going to happen later this year or early next year. Uh, I look back to the example of 2017. Uh, Kim's New Year's address talked about the final stages of preparations for an ICBM launch, but we didn't see that ICBM first launch until the 4th of July. So uh, I think we need to keep in mind th these things play out over time. So as far as what it is, I see a lot of speculation that it's a ballistic missile submarine. That seems to be sort of the latest, uh, you know, kind of uh, rumor or, or speculation. Um, and I was able to find a reference in North Korean state media in English to a ballistic missile sub in the past being called a strategic weapon. So I think we can't rule that idea out, um, but that term has much more often been used to refer to long-range nuclear-capable missiles. Um, and I think it's also important to keep in mind North Korea has already tested a uh, new SLBM uh, late last year, uh, and uh, that North Korea state media gave us glimpses last summer uh, of a uh, uh, submarine that's not really that new or all that impressive. So if the new strategic weapon is really just a ballistic missile sub, this really doesn't change the equation much, and, and frankly, it's it's not really that that big strategically of an event. Um, however, there's there's some far more significant possibilities of what this new strategic weapon could be that would really pose a, a far more serious threat. So 
Uh, back in January, not long after the the, uh, the statement about the new strategic weapon, we saw a comment from a South Korean lawmaker that was picked up in the South Korean press that this new strategic weapon could be a missile with more than one warhead, essentially uh, a, what's called a MIRV, multiple independent reentry vehicles. And this would be a far more significant development than a new sub because it would mean two things. First of all, that North Korea could potentially strike multiple targets with the launch of just one missile. Uh, and second, uh, it also means that uh, missile defense becomes much more complicated against this this type of uh, a weapon. Uh, and so you'll, you'll uh, of course, recall during the Cold War when uh, MIRVs were developed, this was a huge setback for proponents of uh, missile defense because it, it makes missile defense not only much more difficult but much less efficient because you have to build multiple interceptors uh, for uh, for each missile uh, that's that's incoming because you have to intercept multiple uh, multiple warheads, multiple reentry vehicles. Um, and so I personally wouldn't be surprised uh, if we saw a test launch of one of these missiles with multiple warheads um, as an October surprise or even before October. But I think Kim's hedging his bets and his relationship with the president before the election, uh, as Assemblyman Tay mentioned with the, the message uh, that, that came from Kim Yo-jong on the 10th of July. So I think it's more likely actually to, to allude to one of your possibilities that you raised, Bruce, is the idea um, that it would be displayed at the traditional parade for the Korean Workers' Party uh, anniversary on the 10th of October. Um, and because this is a 75th anniversary year, and in 2015, uh, five years ago, we we also saw pretty significant displays of strategic weapons. I would expect the, the same this year. Um, and so uh, some sort of uh, advanced types of strategic weapons, even if there isn't uh, something really large scale launched um, in, in October. Uh, and frankly, given given their track record and given Kim's statement, uh, I would actually be more surprised if they didn't display a new strategic weapon this October. I think the bigger question is, are they going to do uh, a, a launch beyond some of these uh, these shorter range systems or, or SLBM? I think that's the, the, the larger question. And, and that may wait until uh, after the uh, results of the election are clear. I'll, I'll first ask if any uh, anyone else wants to jump in on sort of the provocation angle, and then I, I do have a, a lot of good questions from the audience. Um, so, you know, a driver or uh, initiative on uh, provocation, uh, Duyan? Hi. So, um, sorry, Marcus, I lost you for several minutes there, so I might be repeating things that you've already said, um, and the screen froze. But, um, you know, I, I think I, I heard the beginning part of some of the stuff that you said, um, and I would agree with um, your points of, and, and even um, Assemblyman Tay mentioned a couple too, and Bruce, but it really could be in the form of just, you know, just putting it on display, a new strategic, strategic weapon on display during their military parade. It could be showing, just showing this new, this new submarine. It could actually be launching um, a submarine launched ballistic missile. It could be further, you know, short, medium, range ballistic missiles, uh, multiple rocket launchers. So it really could be the whole spectrum um, of, of different types of weaponry. I, you know, I suspect so far, based on what we're hearing and seeing from North Korean statements and the mood with, with the United States, um, I do not think it is likely that would that they would go as far as testing ICBMs before the election. I think Jung mentioned this um, in her remarks. Um, but, you know, I think there's a critical moment that we need to look look at which is the day after the u.s election in between you know november 4th until january 20th and when a new or a new president comes in or, or trump is reelected. and i think during that period 
So for example, if um, candidate Biden is elected as president, uh, then North Korea could see this as an opportunity to ramp up their testing of their weaponry with all sorts of all different types and classes of missiles. Um, might take advantage of not, not only to fulfill their military imperatives to per, um, perfect their technology, but also to send uh, a message to um, newly elected President Biden saying, you know, you can't mess with us and to try to um, increase their leverage uh, before future negotiations, whenever that may be, whenever they decide to uh, return to negotiations. If President Trump is reelected, um, I suspect the likelihood of them, um, of waging a huge provocation is probably low. They might want to uh, wait and see um, and see how President Trump uh, reacts to North Korea in a new or in, in a new um, presidential term uh, and then decide whether it wants to escalate or not. Okay, uh, I'm gonna turn to the, to the audience questions now. Uh, our first one is uh, for Assemblyman uh, Tave. Uh, well, a, a pretty encompassing one here, sir. Uh, what do you think is the most effective way to solve the North Korean problem? So obviously a very expansive uh, question. Uh, one that all of us have been struggling with decades. So uh, sort of take any any part of that uh, broad topic you'd like, sir. Uh, the first uh, thing North Korea always wants to do is to uh, reach a kind of, you know, deal or compromise from South Korea and you know, the United States. Uh, the major goal for North Korea is to... Uh, achieve the stage of a uh, nuclear state. So they want to achieve the same goal like what China, India, or uh, Pakistan have done uh, as a kind of a nuclear state. The, uh, when I was in North Korea, the continuation of those, you know, the policies uh, and the propaganda work always for something like, you know, uh, why North Korea uh, uh, cannot achieve the same uh, state like China or Pakistan or India uh, uh, did in the past. So, why not for North Korea? So, still, Kim Jong-un and it's, you know, the regime strongly uh, believe in that they can also achieve the same thing which uh, China and India and Pakistan, you know, achieve. So I think for America and South Korea, we should continue to tell to Kim Jong-un regime that North Korea is different from China, India, or Pakistan because North Korea stated openly and continuously that the purpose of their nuclear weapons are targeted America. They directly pose a threat to you know, American interest. That is a really great big difference from China or India or Pakistan, uh, their nuclear weapons. So that's why we should tell North Korea very clearly uh, at any cost, America or South Korea will not accept the North Korea's status as nuclear, you know, uh, the weapon state. I think that is the first thing we should do. The second thing is that I think we need a kind of, you know, harmonization between South Korea and America on North Korea's nuclear issues. For instance, now America, even 
after Trump administration. America administration now keeps on its uh, principle on denuclearization issues, something like, you know, without solving the nuclear issues with North Korea, America cannot, you know, ease sanctions against uh, North Korea. While in South Korea, things are different because, you know, current South Korean government uh, continues to give a kind of signal to North Korea that they can want to, you know, the skip you know, the current sanction regime by developing into Korean relations first and then nuclear issues second. So I think this is really, you know, give a wrong impression or signal to North Korea. I think America and South Korea say in one North but we should not make a uh, kind of different signal or approach towards uh, Kim Jong-un regime. I think that is the secondly important thing. Great. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, we have a question from our uh, friend and colleague, Mark Tokola, over at Korea Economic Institute. Can you hear uh, Yes, we, we could hear you, sir. Yes. From your, you know, yes, sir. We, we, we could hear you. Thank you. Um, so a question, I'll, I'll send this one to Marcus, uh, since uh, Mark asks, uh, if, as uh, Assemblyman Tay says, this is a time when China has leverage over North Korea because of the food shortages, what will China ask of North Korea in exchange for assistance? So uh, going back to my earlier comments, I think the, the Chinese uh, generally want to, want to keep things right, trying to minimize uh, the potential for for a major confrontation. I don't think they're going to ask much from North Korea other than, uh, you know, we're dealing with this COVID situation. We're dealing with all these challenges with the U.S. Just um, you can you can continue to do some some low level weapons testing. You can continue to be uh, rhetorically, um, you know, provocative, but but let's keep it below a certain threshold. I think would be sort of the informal understanding. Uh, however, I must respectfully disagree that the aid actually gives China that much leverage. China is providing aid to North Korea to avoid a humanitarian crisis on its border. They're not doing it out of the uh, goodness of their heart. And they're not really doing it, I think, in the expectation of getting much leverage out of it with North Korea. Um, because I think in the end, it's a, it's, a, it's a phony threat. If China pulls its humanitarian assistance to North Korea, uh, China is going to be hurt just as much as North Korea in the end. And North Korea could just open the floodgates um, and make China pay a price for that um, or, or be very provocative in response. So I think that's a very self-defeating tactic. And I think the Chinese have, uh, really have not shown willingness to use humanitarian aid as a weapon. Sanctions, perhaps, but I don't think they would pull humanitarian aid or, or cut off fuel to North Korea. It's, it's, a, it's a great threat, but I, I don't think it's practical right now for the Chinese to use. Okay, uh, another question from uh, a, a colleague, uh, Guy Aragoni. Uh, President Trump has alluded to quickly reaching an agreement with North Korea after the election. Uh, how will his stated timeline influence North Korea's decisions? And that could either be to delay on a provocation or delay on a summit. Uh, perhaps I'll start with you, Jung. Guy, I wish I could see your handsome face um, as you ask that question. Um, great, really great to hear from you. Um, so I think on the timeline and, and what President Trump has been saying, I think it's, you know, the uh, what, uh, you know, quickly reaching a deal. I think that a second Trump, a potential second Trump administration, um, I think would be um, 
would would likely be less tethered to some of the tenets that we've been following in terms of North Korea policy. Um, that a lot of this, uh, the president clearly um, wants to have some some kind of deal with North Korea. On, on the one hand, it could be at this point um, when he says it, um, it could be a way to continue to dangle. Um, to North Korea that, you know, this relationship will be good, don't try anything provocative in the meantime, um, and then I can give you, you know, promise some other uh, goodies um, later. Um, but I think that in terms of, I'm not, I think, you know, I think what my, what the other panelists have said, um, and I'll uh, foot stomp this, in that, I, you know, I, we, I think I, we're going to see a period of uneasy stability in the coming months into the end of the year where you know we're, we're going to be constantly having this conversation about will he or won't he um, whether it's whether us the president uh, trump or, or kim jong-un in terms of what they're willing to um uh engage with each other on um so i think that um in the in the meantime um i think uh kim might see it to be in his interest to not not uh stir the waters too much at this point um, and that uh, we might see uh, a president that he might be calculating that a, pre a second a Trump administration could make more headway on this. But, you know, I'm also not going to be um, I also I'm not sure what Kim assesses President Trump can do even in the second term. Um, given that Congress, um, there's bipartisan support for human uh, for human rights um, in North Korea. Partisan support on sanctions um, and, and, and maintaining the pressure on North Korea. But that said, there are other ways that the president can, other ways that the president can, uh, start, you know, massage the relationship. And I, and I mentioned having a peace declaration or symbolic, um, some sort of peace-related uh, uh, statement um, in, in the Trump administration. Okay, uh, Mark, yes, you had a two-finger. So, uh, so as is typical, I agree with Jung, of course, but uh, I want to add one other point that I think is really critical to this whole conversation. I, I don't think we should underestimate how much Hanoi was a tremendous defeat for Kim Jong-un and how uh, the, the aftermath of that is, is still with Kim and with his regime. Uh, Kim Yong-chol, his uh, longtime uh, mentor, gets fired as a result of Hanoi. Kim Yo-jong has to keep a little bit of a, of a low profile. Um, many other people, um, and, and maybe Senator uh, uh, Tay, you, you may know this better than I do in terms of uh, who, who was purged and, and who was punished specifically in the aftermath of Hanoi, but it's pretty clear that there were a lot of people in the North Korean uh, regime system who were involved in the Hanoi summit planning and preparations that were punished in some way and some level of severity. So the fact that this was a huge defeat for Kim personally, an embarrassment for him, a defeat for the regime, uh, the regime system, for the advisors, uh, means that the threshold is going to be very high for the North Koreans to uh, be willing to support um, another summit um, and, and his advisor to say to Kim, hey, you're going to be able to get a good deal out of this situation. So I, I think um, it, it is uh, it, it, it militates in favor of everything that Johnny is saying, but I would take it even a step further to say that the, the standard is going to be extremely high, I think, for, for uh, getting North Korea to the table for another summit. Okay, I saw uh, Duyan. Yeah, just to add another layer of detail, I agree with what Jung and Marcus have both said, um, but just to add, to tie those two comments together, um, if Kim Jong-un will be, of course, looking for 
something in return where he is not going home empty-handed, right? Just like what Marcus said. Now, the level of detail I want to add is so far, um, since Hanoi until now, uh, the the barter that North Korea is willing to engage in is the whole Yongbyon for UN sanctions relief, uh, and that's the trade-off, and that that's the main sticking point right now. The other stuff. Um, you know, it's all window dressing and stuff that they already know they're going to get, things like liaison office, things like, you know, some sort of symbolic um, peace declaration or whatnot. And so uh, if, you know, and, and this is something where it's different from his father's time in negotiations, where during his father, uh, they had a long wish list, a long laundry list of asks. I mean, we didn't know what they wanted until the last minute and when they pocketed some concessions. But now under Kim Jong-un, they're, they negotiate in a very tight box, and if they don't get it, if they don't get what they're demanding, that barter that they're demanding, they walk away from the table. And when we see this uh, during um, inter-Korean negotiations between the Moon government and Kim Jong-un uh, before this whole symmetry with Trump and Kim. Uh, and so if, if, if Kim Jong-un continues to insist on that's the only bar bargain on the table, uh, then it, then the next, if Trump is reelected, it'll still be difficult and challenging on this on a substantive level in negotiations. And if Kim Jong-un is not able to empower his negotiators to think creatively and to try to present other types of scenarios, other compromise scenarios, then we're going to be stuck in this same situation we're in today. Great. Um, I have a, a question for uh, Assemblyman Tay from uh, Alexander Vershbow, Sandy Vershbow. Uh, our former ambassador to South Korea. Uh, he asks you, how much does North Korea worry about South Korea getting its own nuclear weapons? Oh, I don't think uh, North Korea would split in any possibility of uh, South Korea's position of uh, nuclear weapons because North Korea uh, clearly understands that uh, opening of possibility of South Korea's arming with nuclear weapons would be another chance, you know, uh, Japan, which would create a really, really, you know, the threat for uh, the non-proliferation regime. Uh, uh, so that's why I don't think any uh, the uh, kind of you know uh, the debate on the possibility of South Korea's arming with uh, nuclear weapons could give any kind of you know very serious uh, thinking to the North Korean regime because basically North Korea does not believe in the any possibility of South Korea's nuclear weaponry. Great, thank you. Um, well, I, I think this, the sign of a good meeting is, unfortunately, we've, we've run out of time long before we've run out of questions. Uh, hopefully, we can do this again, because uh, unfortunately, we do have a, a lot of really good questions. Uh, I think, in, in summary, it sounds like uh, there's a sense amongst the panel that uh, a provocation or a summit is, is not as likely as, uh, or is unlikely more than uh, many people think. Uh, but it does seem like there's good arguments can be made for both why North Korea would and would not do a, a provocation, as well as would and would not do a, a summit. And, it, and so it all comes down to we're not very sure. It's what we used to uh, 
call at, at CIA giving someone the CIA salute, which is, we don't really know what will happen. We'll just have to keep watching. Um, so I do want to thank all of our panelists for, uh, and especially National Assembly member Tay for giving his time um, for uh, sharing their insights. I thank the audience for staying with us on such an important conversation. Uh, if you work on the Hill or a think tank or just have questions, please feel free to contact me using the information listed on the screen. Uh, I'd love to continue the conversation. Uh, and immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so you can bring items that uh, you care about to the public square. So uh, you can see the events that Heritage is having on other issues um, and check out that on heritage.org slash events. So again, thank you to all my panelists. Thank you to National Assembly Member Tay uh, and thank you to the audience. So we, we, we are adjourned. Thank you again.